see all of you. Thank you for having me. Uh, A lot of you were here earlier this morning, and we talked about, basically we talked about Jewish eschatology. And this morning we're going to talk about eschatology and discipleship. When I say eschatology, I'm just talking about the study of the end of things. And uh, what's normally associated with eschatology is the end of this age with an antichrist and a conglomeration of nations against Israel. That, that's what I'm not what I'm really talking about. I'm talking about kind of eternal or ultimate eschatology that goes on forever. And uh, so I'm talking about when you say eternal life, that is eschatology. What is the end game or the final state? And so we talked about Jewish eschatology or Jewish eternal life um, this morning before this. And that involved primarily the day of the Lord and the associated judgment of the living and the dead, the resurrection of the dead on a new earth with a new heavens and new earth and the righteous inheriting the kingdom of God or the messianic kingdom in a glorified Jerusalem on a Davidic throne and the wicked being thrown outside of Jerusalem into the valley of Hinnom that is filled with fire and becomes the lake of fire. And so this is Jewish eschatology. Now, what's happened throughout church history is that you've had two other predominant eschatologies, two other predominant end games for redemptive history. The first is a Greek eschatology. And that is where the universe is split in two parts, natural and supernatural, which isn't how Jews viewed the universe. They viewed the heavens and the earth, plural heavens. And so in a Greek worldview, the universe is split into two parts. And the goal of redemptive history is to escape the material world and go to the immaterial world forever. And so the Greeks viewed the body as the soma sema, the tomb of the soul, And the goal was your soul to escape the body because the material world is fundamentally evil and to go the the freedom of the soul in the the immaterial world. So if, uh, you know, uh, there's the story that Plato wrote about Socrates called Phaedo in which it's the last day of Socrates and he's waxing on about how his soul is finally going to be freed from his body through death. 
And so death is actually the agent of salvation to escape the material world, to go to an immaterial, eternal existence of the soul. And so that is the Greek view of salvation, and that is Greek eschatology, the eternal sing-along in the clouds with the harps, you know all of that, you guys are familiar So Jews didn't know anything about that. And that's kind of the age-old adage that Jews don't believe in heaven. They believe in the resurrection of the dead, right? So it's when the early uh, Jewish movement, Messianic movement, ended up bringing in a lot of Greco-Roman Gentiles. And Greco-Roman Gentiles are preconditioned to view the material world as bad. So the whole idea of the resurrection of the body, the day of God, a new heavens, a new earth, that was all just kind of like weird and slowly got pushed to the side in the third and fourth centuries. And, uh, And the church became much more Greek. And the scriptures for them was were fulfilled the scriptures were fulfilled in the eternal existence of the soul in the immaterial world that's eternal life that's the resurrection that's the kingdom of god etc right whereas jews viewed the scriptures being fulfilled on the day of the lord in a new heavens and new earth on a resurrect with resurrected bodies in a new jerusalem with the king of the jews ruling forever and ever in eternal glory And no more death, suffering, crying, or pain. But the Greeks said there's no more suffering, death, crying, or pain in the eternal sing-along in the clouds. Right. So those are the two main competing eschatologies throughout history. And then you have a third eschatology, which is Roman eschatology, with the conversion of Constantine and his court historian, Eusebius of Caesarea. He wrote a church history, if you're familiar with it. But that wasn't his primary contribution. His primary contribution is that he wrote two works on the life of Constantine. Called uh, One was called The Life of Constantine. The other was called An Oration and Praise of Constantine. In which he said the Jewish scriptures were fulfilled in the life of Constantine and the Roman Empire. And that becomes its own eschatology, its own endgame. So instead of the Jewish fulfillment of the scriptures in the Messianic kingdom on a new earth, instead of the Greek fulfillment of the scriptures in an immaterial world, an eternal existence of the soul, the Jewish scriptures are fulfilled in a fallen mortal Gentile Roman Pax Romana utopian Christian society. And so that Roman eschatology has been alive and vibrant throughout church history. And any time you get a, for not to point out or pick, but usually you don't get a real clean Roman eschatology. Usually the Greek is in there somewhere, but I just took my boys, uh, you know, a month ago and we did a a tour of Wheaton and they're trying to figure out where, you know, they want to do uh, college and uh, we went to chapel, and it was a pure, like the message was a pure Roman narrative. Starting in Genesis, Adam and Eve were created to establish dominion, and the Jews, they just couldn't get it right. But the Christians, we started as a mustard seed, and we've taken over. We're the largest religion on earth, and we're produce, producing Christian leaders and disciples, and we're going to extend the kingdom over the whole earth. And I was like, wow. That is an impressively Roman narrative with a Roman eschatology, an ideal utopian society, Christian society on earth. The problem is it doesn't work 
And we keep, for the last 1,700 years, trying to get good, godly Christians as rulers, but then they end up becoming bankrupt and depraved over and over, and it just keeps not working. Dang it. But the faithful keep pressing it. And, and so you have three primary eschatologies, end games, throughout uh, church history, and they get mixed together, Jewish, Greek, and Roman. And all of the, uh, all of the language of the scriptures gets plugged into those different stories, particularly the kingdom of God. And so for a Jew, within the Jewish redemptive narrative, the kingdom of God is established at the day of the Lord on a new earth with resurrected bodies based in Jerusalem, the Messianic kingdom. For Gentiles, the kingdom of God is an immaterial world, the immaterial realm that you enter through death. For Romans, the kingdom of God is the manifestation of divine sovereignty through the emperor. And then Augustine shifted it to the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, right? So the kingdom of God is, uh, embodies what your redemptive narrative is. And then you have three synthetic combinations of those three. The Augustinian, <laughs> the sensational and inaugurational. And so it's just a big old mess. It's a huge mess. And what that does is it creates confusion... Because we all want to know where we're going. Right? We're humans. We deal like we were born. We're living. And the future is coming. And it keeps happening. Like just now. And that was just in the past when I was talking about being born. And now we're now. And the future is going to happen here in just a second. And we're there. And it's going to happen again. And it's going to keep going. And where is it going? What is... Where's the future of all this? Where is the earth and humanity going? And you have different narratives of history that tell you where it's going. Now, the dominant narrative in the West is naturalism. We came out of a soup. We evolved from rocks. We're really awesome now. But we're actually, we've kind of messed it up. And we're going to get off this planet and go to Mars. And we're going to do 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 right? That's delusional. That's not reality. Reality is, is this earth used to be perfect. Human beings used to live forever. And now we die, unfortunately. And those of you over 40 are feeling it more and more. And you soon begin to appreciate the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And the earth is moving towards fire and angels in the sky and the judgment of the living and the dead. And a new heavens and new earth. That's the reality. But Gentiles have different stories about that. And the dominant one throughout history is that the material world is bad and messed up. And there's an immaterial world that we're all going to go to forever. And there's not going to be any bodies or death or suffering. And that's how it's all fixed. So these three kind of end games of redemptive history create all of this confusion about where the future is. Where our lives are going and what the end game is. And the Greek eschatology particularly has created a disengagement with the world. Because if the material world's all bad and the body's bad, then it doesn't matter. It's like the sinking Titanic. You just jump off when you die and you get out of here. And you prepare for jumping off 
and getting out of the material world by asceticism. And so that has been the primary discipleship response to Greek eschatology from the 3rd century moving forward is monasticism. And monasticism isn't necessarily bad, but it's just a kind of broken discipleship response that disengages from the world. Because God is intensely engaged with the world. Because He's intent on fixing it and making it new because He loves it. He loves humans, even in their ugly, broken state. And He's proven it by sinking an anchor into history called the Jewish people. And he's continued to stay with them, much to the dismay of all of us Gentiles. Such a weird thing. But he has used it to prove that he's going to restore this people. And it's going to be a sign that he's going to restore the whole earth and creation as a whole. And us Gentiles, we continue to push back for a couple thousand years going, what are those Jews talking about? And now all of a sudden they're in the land and the whole Christian world has to go, wait, the Jews are still there? What are they talking about? Maybe they're kind of important. I don't know. But anyway, so the Greek eschatology has created this disengagement with the world. And then the Roman eschatology, taking over and creating a Christian utopian on the earth, has created its own discipleship response which is embodied in things like the Crusades. Charlemagne's Empire, Innocent III, the Munster Rebellion, the Fifth Monarchy Men, Oliver Cromwell, the Taiping Rebellion. All of these are expressions of the desire to see the Roman narrative play out in the establishment of a utopian Christian, quote, kingdom of God on earth. And so it's this confusion that in the early 1900s caused a a young Baptist pastor in New York named Walter Rauschenbusch to push back against eschatology. And if you guys can pull up a picture of Walter, that is going to impress me. They were impressing me earlier because they had put everything up on the PowerPoint as I was talking. I was like, wow. (laughs) And, uh, And so Walter was annoyed by people like D.L. Moody preaching the cross and Greek eschatology. And, uh, and so he put out this whole series of books and he became known as the father of the social gospel. And he was really obnoxious. It was just really Roman eschatology that he was preaching. A social gospel, a utopian Christian society filled with mortal, depraved Gentiles. Never works. But he really put a wedge between eschatology and discipleship. And he was the one in the early 1900s who really said, if you focus on eschatology, it will warp discipleship. It will warp how Christians respond and play out in society and love their neighbor and focus on evangelism and missions. And nothing could be farther from the truth. But his propagation of the social gospel, there he is, look at it. Wow. His propagation, his kind of magnum opus was a book called The Social Gospel, published in 1912. And the social gospel made its way into the missions movement and killed the student volunteer movement in the 1920s, if you read the minutes. 
And it became lodged into all the great mission conferences was this idea that you can't just preach salvation and evangelism, which was usually Greek eschatology rather than Jewish, but you can't just preach salvation and evangelism. You have to take care of people's needs and da 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 and, he, and it kind of flowered and unfolded to the present day, along with some help from the dispensationalists that are ultra-focused, myopic on the end of this age, what I call temporal eschatology instead of eternal. And, uh, and so it's created this division in people's minds between eschatology and discipleship, that if you focus on eschatology, you will have bad discipleship. And that's completely wrong. Actually, eschatology drives discipleship. And it's bad eschatology that produces bad discipleship. It's bad eschatology that produces bad discipleship. And so I love the reading that, uh, that the lady read from Acts 2, you know, and like we view the early church and they're selling their possessions and having things in common and meeting together. Why are they selling their possessions and giving to the poor? Because they're ideological communists? No. Because they have extra lands and, the, and Jesus, there's just an angel that said that this guy who they believe to be the Messiah, who's going to judge the living and the dead and make a new heavens and new earth. He was taken up in clouds and there was an angel that said he's returning in the clouds, just like Daniel 7 and Zechariah 14. And so we have actually, why, why would we hold on to this? Let, let's sell it and store up treasures in heaven that will receive at the day of God on a new earth and the resurrection. They're actually early capitalists. They're looking for a million-fold return you sell a little bit now, store up treasure in heaven, and you're going to have wealth unimaginable that no eye has seen, no ear has heard in the age to come in the resurrection. That's why they're selling their stuff and giving the poor, because they're looking forward to a better resurrection. Because their eschatology, their view of eternal life, the resurrection, the age to come, was driving how they lived out their life in this age. Does that make sense? Now, as the eschatology changes... And you and they it becomes a Greek eschatology, and you look forward to being suited for heaven and an eternal immaterial sing-along. Well, you respond to this world differently. And if your eschatology, the fulfillment of the scriptures, is in a utopian Christian society, some kind of Pax Romana, then you respond differently. And you walk according to that hope differently. Does that make sense? Okay, so. Uh, that just I wanted to just kind of lay out a little bit. I know I took too much time on that. But I wanted to lay out a little bit the three main eschatologies throughout uh, church history. And I want to argue that Jewish eschatology, Jewish eschatology, good eschatology produces good, healthy discipleship. It's a lack of eschatology and a lack of focus on that which is eternal that produces bad discipleship. 1 Peter 1 is a great example if you have notes. Do we have notes? Did those get passed out? Yeah, we got notes. Okay. Hopefully, if you, this is just a resource for you guys if, you can, if it's going to be online or something. And it's just kind of for reference. And it uh, points out the four main ways in which eschatology uh, drives discipleship. But 1 Peter 1 is a great example. 
Because Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. The therefore is all the verses before that. That talk about our hope being the revelation of Christ Jesus. And the salvation of our souls in resurrected bodies. That's how our souls are saved. Not by escaping the body. But receiving an eternal resurrected body. In which there's no warring in the members. In which there's no disposition towards sin and saying no to God. And so he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the day of the Lord when he will grant the resurrection of the dead and eternal life in a new heavens and new earth, based in Jerusalem, etc. So set your hope fully, not on this present evil age, but on the return of Jesus and the grace to be given to you, that grace, in the verses before, is a resurrected body and eternal life. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Your former ignorance that the day of God is coming and Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. Your ignorance of the resurrection and eternal life led you to meaningless pursuits of vanity, of money, of power, of pleasure, of wealth, of impact, meaningless pursuits that have no eternal significance. Don't be like the Gentiles. Chasing after food and clothes. They don't know. They don't know. They don't have the scriptures. They don't know where the earth is going. They don't know the day of God is coming. They have no hope in eternal life and living forever. Don't be like them. Don't chase after and live according to their vain end game. <clears throat> so he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, your discipleship, your walking out of life. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. <clears throat> and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So in light of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, and the father who's going to judge the living and the dead through the Messiah... Conduct yourself, walk out your discipleship during the time of exile, this age, with fear and trembling, being holy as God is going to be, as God is holy, right? So it's the eschatology, the judgment, that determines how you walk out with fear and trembling in this age. Titus 2 is another great example where Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And for first century Jews, salvation was in light of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the resurrection, the age to come. Right? So, bringing salvation, the death of the Messiah for our sins, saves us from the wrath to come, from the day of judgment. So that we can inherit the resurrection and eternal life. So it brings salvation for all men. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. 
So it's the two-age understanding of history that this evil, this age, before the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus, is present evil. And we need to conduct our lives in light of the future and the expectation of the day of Christ Jesus and the hope of the resurrection and eternal life. And it's that eschatology, it's that view of the future that instills the fear of God and fleeing the wrath to come, informing us to walk uprightly and godly in this present evil age, right? So eschatology is actually the driver for healthy discipleship. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So it's the context of redemptive history, the understanding of the coming judgment of the living and the dead, the mercy and kindness and patience of God in this age, to save us as a gift and to present us blameless at the coming day of Christ Jesus, to inherit the, uh, the resurrection and eternal life. That's what produces in us the motivation and response to say no to ungodliness, to say yes to righteousness, to walk uprightly. Because if there's none of that, what are we doing? I mean, we might as well go out and have a good time. We might as well go out and make a lot of money and indulge and have a good time. What's the point? But it's the eternal perspective that curves and trains us in godliness to say no to ungodliness. And once you get over 40 and everybody around you starts walking in ungodliness because ungodliness is the norm in business and everywhere. And all of your friends start getting divorced, and it, it's train wreck on every side. A number of years ago, we had uh, some of our best friends from seminary, and uh, they went through an extremely difficult, broken situation of adultery and immorality and uh, drug addiction. And my wife and I were out eating dinner and uh, together, and she just looked at me, and she was like, how do I know that you're not going to do this? She was dead serious, just real intense. And I was like, and it just came out. I didn't think, I just said, because adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I really want to live forever. And she like stared at me and was like, okay. And we just awkwardly, and later she told me like that wasn't the answer I wanted to hear, but it's the answer I needed to hear. And I was like, well, what was the answer you wanted to hear? She was like, I'm not telling you. And I was like, okay. So I, just, I still don't know. But, it, but when push comes to shove, it's the fear of God that makes you walk uprightly. And the love of God strengthens and encourages you. But if you don't have the fear of God, there, it's hopeless. And if you don't have real events and of redemptive history, not abstract ideological principles... But real events called a real judgment day that's instructing and informing and instilling the fear of God, it will not take. It will not take. Uh, 
So let's move down to eschatology informs mission. Eschatology informs mission. This is standard and it's basic logic. Whatever your end game is, you live for it, right? It happens in anything you do. You know, militaries, that's why they're so focused on on figuring out the objective, the eschatology of them, because that informs and keeps everybody on the same mission, right? If, uh, If you want to, you know, one of my favorite examples is if you want to run a Fortune 500 company, Elon Musk, if you've ever heard him talk about it, tells you exactly how to do it. If your eschatology, your end game, is to run a Fortune 500 company, all you have to do is work 100 hours a week. Everybody else works 50 hours a week. You work 100 hours a week. You get twice as much done. You work your way up and you run the company. Or Tom Brady, if you want to be the greatest football player of all time, a lot of you have probably heard his kind of, or any great athlete, they get an objective, an end game in mind, and it forces their discipline and discipleship toward that. And the reason Tom Brady is who he is is because he's relentless and curbing everything about his life toward one end. Any mission is driven by its end or its eschatology. And so the same is in the scriptures. If your end game is living forever, then you can form your whole life toward that end game. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Philippians 3.11, right? So living forever is the end game, the prize in the scriptures. And it's Jewish eschatology on a new earth with the resurrection of the dead, etc. Now, if your end game is to float on a cloud forever and the body is bad, then you're going to become super uh, 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 monastic. And denial of the flesh and asceticism is the discipleship mechanism for curbing everything about this world and the body and the flesh because it's all bad, right? So anyway, whatever your end game is, that's what you drive towards. So in the New Testament, uh, Matthew 28 gives context for Jewish eschatology, gives context for the church as a whole. So Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I put in, uh, in parentheses or brackets, to judge the living and the dead. Because that's how Peter recounts it in Acts 10 when he's with Cornelius, which is the only other time it's directly recounted. When he's telling Cornelius that we ate and drank with him, and he commanded us to testify that he's the judge of the living and the dead, and all who believe in him receive the forgiveness of sins. And so this is how Jews understood the Great Commission, was in light of the Day of Judgment, and that's what the Messiah would do. So if you read Jewish texts that talk about authority being given to the Messiah, it's like Daniel 7, like 4th Ezra 7, or 4th Ezra 13, or 2nd Baruch 74, or 1st Enoch 48. These are just kind of common Jewish texts. And the Messiah is given authority to judge the living and the dead and to raise the dead in light of the day of judgment and new heavens and new earth. So this is what they would understand when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me to judge the living and the dead at the day of judgment. Therefore, go and make disciples of the Gentiles, meaning learners, make learners of the Gentiles. The opposite of a disciple is a teacher. 
A disciple is not above its teacher. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. The word for disciple is a pedagogical word. So a disciple is a learner. We have a good word in English. It's called student. But there's too much baggage associated with that word. So make pupils or learners out of the, out of the Gentiles. And what are, what, are, what are they learning? They're learning the scriptures, which tells them the future of the world. The day of judgment, the resurrection, eternal life. So go teach the Gentiles the scriptures. That earth isn't going to always go on like this. That judgment is coming to flee the wrath to come in hopes of the resurrection and eternal life. Go teach them the prophets, the Torah, the writings. And he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And of course, baptism at the time was done as a ritual for purification, like John the Baptist, in light of the coming judgment. So baptizing them, tell them judgment's coming, flee the wrath to come. Baptize them for the forgiveness of sin. Teaching them everything I've commanded and I'm with you to the end of the age. You don't make a two-age statement unless you're talking about a two-age reality. Right? And the thing that creates the end of the age is the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. So the Great Commission is, is given context by Jewish eschatology, the day of judgment and the two ages. And the mission is the fullness of the Gentiles, to see as many Gentiles saved, of course, and Jews, as many Gentiles saved from the wrath to come as possible. Second Peter 3 is a good example of that. Where Peter says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So the same way God cleansed the earth during the flood with Noah, he's going to cleanse the heavens and the earth with fire to make a new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness. He says, but the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise as some count slowness. Slowness. He is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Da, 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 da. Right? And so it's the day of the Lord that informs the mission of God. The mission of God is not to pluck as many people out of the material world as possible to float on a cloud forever. The mission of God is not to take over the earth and instill depraved Gentiles as rulers over it. The mission of God is to see as many people from among the Gentiles saved from the wrath to come as possible to inherit the resurrection and eternal life. Does that make sense? And so this is what Paul is saying in Romans 11. Romans 11 is kind of the climax of, kind of Paul's theological exposition of the death of the Messiah. And the inclusion of the Gentiles. And explanation about the apostasy of the Jews. And there's a problem in Rome in which Gentiles are thinking that God has changed the redemptive narrative. And it's no longer about the Jews. And Paul goes on to say, um, I don't want to get too deep into it. Uh, but he asks, have the Jews sinned so far as to have fallen from that position in verse 11 in chapter 11? He says, by no means. Because of their sin, 
mercy and salvation has come to you Gentiles. And he says it's like an olive tree in which unrepentant, arrogant, uh, uh, prideful Jews have been broken out of the olive tree. And that's a cultivated olive tree. And you Gentiles who are uncultivated in the Torah, in the scriptures, have been brought into it. And you receive the nourishing sap of chapter 8, the hope of the resurrection and eternal life. Even though you're not a Jew, but you hope in a Jewish salvation. And then he says in the next verse, which is verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it's written. The Redeemer will come from Zion. And all Israel being saved in Jewish literature is just a reference to the day of God and the resurrection and the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. It's not some special revelation or understanding. It's just phraseology that summarizes Jewish eschatology. All Israel being saved is synonymous with the day of Christ Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, and the age to come. And so you Gentiles don't become arrogant and think that the story has changed just because God is extending mercy to the Gentiles. Let me explain to you. There's a hardness among the Jews because God is extending mercy to the Gentiles. He had mercy on the Jews. Now He's having mercy on the Gentiles. So that in the end, He can be glorified as the one having mercy over all. Verses 31 and 32. Oh, the wisdom and knowledge of the unsearchable knowledge of God. And He goes into the doxology at the end of chapter 11. Therefore, chapter 12. Therefore. You guys know the therefore? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, not generically, not abstractly, some divine attribute, in view of God's mercy to the Jews and to the Gentiles in this present evil age before the salvation of Israel, in view of the mercies of God and the hope of Israel and the resurrection and eternal life, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the process of offering ourselves wholeheartedly, selling our extra possessions, putting our hope in the return of Jesus is driven by Jewish eschatology, the laying down of our lives in this age, and the transforming of our minds is according to the scriptures. It's not an abstract transforming of the mind. It's a learn the scriptures, know Israel's story. That's how your mind is transformed. And the application is don't live for this age, live for the age to come, be generous. Sell your possessions. Store up treasure in heaven as a firm foundation for the coming ages. 1 Timothy 6, right? That's what you tell the rich to do. Um, <clears throat> do not be conformed to this age. So what's the opposite of that? Be conformed to the age to come. Right? 
Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Because the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God may end up in a Roman stadium with lions. It's true. The good, pleasing, perfect will of God is not always an upward socioeconomic trend. You know that? And sometimes the Lord allows bad things to happen in our lives. Sickness, bankruptcy, brokenness, to deliver us from the spirit of this age. And I've gone through a couple bankruptcy type situations. Because we've been living on faith for 25 years, my wife and I. And every time, the Lord just kind of whispers, what did you sign up for? What exactly are you in this for? You said you were in this for eternal life, but you seem to be kind of sad about losing money and property. (laughs) Yeah, that's true, Lord. Okay, so the first thing eschatology does is it informs mission. What is God doing in the world? Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's sitting at the right hand of God. What's he doing? He's waiting to make his enemies his footstool at the day of God. He's interceding. He's extending mercy to the Gentiles to see as many saved from the wrath to come, to see the fullness of the Gentiles come in before the restoration of Israel and the kingdom of Israel and all Israel saved. Therefore, what are we doing? We also are putting our hope in the day of Christ Jesus, seeking to see the fullness of the Gentiles come in and living for the age to come. It's the eschatology, it's the future that informs and drives our discipleship and mission. And the mission of the church has been confused and is confused, sadly. If you're on the field, you really see it but is confused because the end game is not clear. And so it's clarity about the future and the end game, the eschatology, that creates clarity of mission. Does that make sense? All right, the second major thing that eschatology does is that it sustains through trials. It sustains through the trials of this age. So 2 Corinthians 4 Where Paul talks about, you know, being beat down, crushed but not destroyed, persecuted but not, whatever, reflected, however he goes on, all all that. He says, but then, yeah, bad Bible memorization right there. But then he gets to the point and says, but we do not lose heart. Even though we go through all of this, 2 Corinthians 11, right, that whole list of him with the beatings and the lashings and the being shipwrecked at sea. Being in danger in the city, danger in the country, danger by the Gentiles. Something that we don't know nothing about. (laughs) Right? All of that, Paul says, we don't lose heart. What would send all of us Westerners into like years of therapy and post-traumatic stress. Paul's like, we don't lose heart. Because we know that even though our outer self is wasting away. Can you imagine how many scars Paul had on his body? 
Our outward self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day in hope. Because it's hope that gets you out of bed in the morning. It's hope. And you can have temporal hopes. A better job. Being better known. Having more impact. Having whatever transforming this. Some sort of social activism. But in the end, it fades and it fails. Ultimately, because the end ends with fire and angels in the sky. And most of all of that is meaningless. So it's eternal hope. It's hope that doesn't change, that lasts forever, that strengthens us to get out of bed and live for that which has eternal meaning and significance, right? And that's what renews us day by day. And as you get older... You long for the resurrection more. Isn't it true? Yes, it is. Okay, so this, Paul says, for this light and momentary affliction, verse 17, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And it's the comparison mechanism that is the real gear of discipleship. It's the gear. It's what turns it. It's what in the grind makes it work. When terrible things happen, it's how we compare that terrible thing to the hope of eternal glory. And it's in the comparison that our souls are comforted. Do you understand? This last year has been extremely difficult for myself and my family in the Middle East, I won't go into it, complicated, painful. <clears throat> and the Lord just kept reminding me over and over, it's not that bad. You have an apartment with air conditioning, and you can get food at a local market. That is pretty easy. And you have running water in your apartment. You have running water. It's not that bad. I'm like, no. It has been kind of bad, Lord. Comparison. It it makes all the difference in the world. Comparison. We'll get to in a minute uh, a real good example of how that comparison works. Hebrews 10. Remember those early days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Now there is nothing more antithetical to the American dream. Then joyfully accepting the confiscation of your property. We love our property. We love it so much. We have an amend- We have a guaranteed right to protect our property in this country. It's not bad. I'm not bashing it. I'm just saying there are priorities in our culture that should be evaluated by the realities of the scripture. And this is a statement that highlights that. Joyfully accepting the confiscation of your property. Why? 
Because you're going to inherit the whole earth without sin, sickness, or death. So it's not that big a deal. Make the comparison. Right? This leads into eschatology patterns righteous conduct. So 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking to the Corinthians. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the courts before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we we are to judge angels? Because the heavens are going to open. The judgment of living and the dead. There's going to be a new heavens and new earth. With angels ascending and descending over Jerusalem. No more sin, sickness, or death. You're going to live forever. You're going to administrate the age to come on a new earth. And those angels ascending and descending are going to be at the command of the saints. Forever and ever and ever. This is your destiny. And you're taking brothers to the court before unbelievers? You can't make the comparison and work it out? This is why in chapter 3 it says you're children being fed by milk. You're not adults. You're not mature. You haven't learned to evaluate your own life and live your life according to your eternal hope and destiny. You're going to judge the world and judge angels. But you haven't figured out how to make the connect with this life and live out in relation to that appropriately. And he says, appropriately, verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Because it doesn't matter a few thousand, a few hundred thousand. It doesn't matter. Because angels and fire in the sky are coming. You're going to inherit a resurrected body on a new earth Forever and ever. And you need to walk out your life in accordance with that. And put in priority that as what really matters. And if you lose money, if you have a downward trajectory, that doesn't affect the eternal outcome at all. And it doesn't mean God's not good. And it doesn't mean God's not sitting at the right hand waiting to make his enemies his footstool. And it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't returning just because it didn't go well for you. It's okay. God still loves you. Even if the end, in the end, all your work, it doesn't work out for you. Maybe in the end, you inherit the resurrection and eternal life. Maybe in the end, the poor are indeed destined to inherit the kingdom. James 2.5 Maybe indeed the last will be first. And the poor of the earth, the majority world, the third world, will actually rule the earth in the age to come. And us wealthy, the first, will be humbled in the age to come. 
if we enter, because it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Don't underestimate that saying. Evaluate your life ruthlessly. It is hard for rich to enter the kingdom of God and inherit the resurrection and eternal life. And we are by far the richest in human history. Evaluate your life ruthlessly. Uh, Romans 13. I'll wrap up here. Romans 13. He says, besides this, know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And so Jews viewed this age as darkness, the night. They viewed the age to come as light, as daytime. And he says, salvation from the wrath to come, the return of Jesus, is nearer than when you first believed. He says, therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I mean, that is... As hardcore discipleship exhortation as you get. And it's done in light of the fact that the daytime, the day, the day of the Lord is near. The return of Jesus is near. Therefore, live as in the daytime. Live according to your destiny. The age to come isn't going to have sexual immorality, theft, uh, uh, sorcery. uh, What's all the things he says there? I lost orgies, drunkenness, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy. The age to come isn't going to have any of that. Because that's not how we were created in the beginning, in the garden. There wasn't immorality, quarreling, jealousy, hatred, theft, lying, etc. That's not how we were created. We weren't created for that. And we won't be that in the age to come. That's not what we're destined for. So live according to your destiny. Live as in the daytime. As you were created in the beginning. Right? So eschatology informs righteous conduct. It informs mission. It sustains through trials. And it patterns righteous conduct. How you're going to live, live like that now. And then fourthly, eschatology frames self-denial. Eschatology frames self-denial. So Matthew 6, 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life in this age will lose it in the age to come. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what will be what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world in this age and forfeits his life in the age to come? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in his, in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So there's not a generic command 
to lay down our lives and take up our cross as just kind of abstract. God is a God of crosses and martyrdom. Therefore, you should be a person of cross and martyrdom. No, the Son of Man is coming with His angels to judge the living and the dead. And those who have laid down their lives in this age for the will and mission of God will receive eternal life on that day. But those who have lived for this age to build up a kingdom in this age, they'll actually lose their soul in the resurrection in the age to come. That's what he's talking about because that's what a cross meant to them. It was the Roman means of martyrdom. And so when Jesus said, anyone who comes after me must take up his cross and follow me, that's what everybody understood. If anyone follows Jesus... They have to embrace martyrdom. That's just a blunt, brutal saying. And you can't get around it. But it makes sense. And it's bearable. In light of Jewish eschatology. If if I'm actually going to live forever. And be raised from the dead at the coming of Christ Jesus. I can find the ability in my soul to surrender and lay down my life now. Daily. But if I don't have that future and that eschatology, I ignore that command. It just never gets talked about or thought about. And that's what happens in most churches. You don't get preaching and teaching of discipleship To deny yourself and lay down your life and your ambitions for the will and ambition of God to see the fullness of the Gentiles come before the day of God and the resurrection because the framework's not there. So the framework in the eschatology gives context and meaning for laying down our lives in this age. It's worth it. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. And it will seem like a small thing on that day. It will seem like a small thing on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Thank you guys for having me with you. Let me pray for us. And um, and then I think we're going to have a time of prayer afterwards. Josh will lead that. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for hope, God, that does not fail. Thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. You have given us knowledge and insight about the truth of the earth and where life is going. And we want to be obedient to that. We want to walk in the cross, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, in jubilant hope, God, that we are going to live forever, even in the midst of pain and suffering, God. And I pray this morning for those of us here in the midst of trial, tribulation, and suffering, That you will strengthen and encourage that this is not the end. This doesn't, this pain and this difficulty does not represent the end. That you, God, have promised that those who hope in you and believe in you and are covered in your blood will inherit eternal glory and joy beyond description. Beyond imagination, God, I pray that you would strengthen the saints here this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'm going to be at the front. Um, John will be at the front as well.
Pray in your row, pray in your seat. If the Lord sees you, you will pray for someone else. Make sure it's okay with them. 